The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors, or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, wipe that file off your interface and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 164 with guest Brian Noyes, recorded live Wednesday, February 15, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls. The most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Also by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who asks the question, if an exception is thrown in the forest... And there's no catch. Carl, what is this crap? Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin, and it's another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, as was previously said in the introduction. And uh, here we are, live with a live guest, Brian Noise. Hi, Brian. Hey, Carl. How's it going? Hi, and, Richard. And Richard Campbell out there. In Vancouver. Here I am. Hey, Richard, what's up? Uh, not too much. I did something strange this week. What'd you do? Uh, I got asked to uh, sit in on, as an expert witness, to an accident uh, injury claim mediation. How? How? You know, well, it turns out this guy, and I'll leave his name out of the whole thing, because I'm sure, he, I don't know if he's a listener or not. He probably is, actually. Uh, he was in an, uh, hit. He was driving a motorcycle and got into an accident. He got hit. And it impaired his ability to sit, uh, which, you know, is kind of a thing you need to do when you're a programmer. Yeah. And he'd been writing some very cool code and was very close to releasing a, a fairly significant uh, application. And so I was asked to assess the application and its potential in the marketplace uh, going back to 1999, which is, you know, a long time ago. So, you know, it's kind of tricky to find people that are in that space. So. It was an interesting discussion uh, and interesting to think about and read through my notes uh, from back then about the kind of work we were doing. And in fact, th this fellow had emailed me then uh, to talk about what he was working on mm -hmm. before the accident happened. Uh, so, it, you know, that whole discussion, it was just something totally different. Spent the half a day uh, talking about the marketplace in 1999 and what the potential of this application was and so on. Wow. So what is the potential of the application? <laughs> oh well, you know, it was it was a pretty remarkable app. He really he was way ahead of his time. He was doing some fairly significant, you know, stuff that we consider normal today uh with having uh, real estate data online. He was doing it in 99, well before everybody else was doing it. Wow. And uh and so he was so far ahead of the curve. I think the biggest problem he had is people didn't understand the potential of it even then. And now when we're starting to get this sort of capability uh, to look for uh, real estate listings and so forth, uh, it's becoming abundantly clear that he had it right in 99. Yeah, I've had a uh, little trouble with being early to market and uh, several ideas, actually. That's been my problem. But anyway, uh, we did get some very cool email this week from Joseph Smelzer. This was great. He says, I thought I would share a small project that involved DNR. 
I remember the day when I first saw TiVo. Besides being one of the best implementations of Linux I had ever seen, I saw an appliance approach that just made sense. Shortly after that, I was sitting in a Microsoft WinHex session when I saw Microsoft Media Center for the first time. It was at that moment I realized what TiVo was missing. What was it? What every good programmer longs for? Extensibility. That's right, I could make it do what I wanted. Microsoft had empowered me, again! Okay, I admit it, I drank the Microsoft Kool-Aid long ago, and yes, I know you can hack TiVo. With all this new supported power, what did I do? Well, I made a .NET Rocks plugin, of course. Microsoft has written a lot <laughs> about the 10-foot user experience, and Media Center appears to be the embodiment of all that user interface research. I thought you would get a kick out of this. And you can get that at shrinkster.com slash C31. That's C31 to, to check out his, this blog post. And, man, that looks beautiful, doesn't it, Richard? It's very uh, Media Center-ish. Yeah, very. Uh, never, and I, I guess that's pulled directly from the RSS feed, all, all the description right. information and so forth. Exactly. So I guess what he can do is he can, you know, go through the go through all the shows with his remote control from his couch and listen to the one he wants, apparently. Very cool. So I guess without any further ado, let's introduce Brian. Brian Noyes is not only a chief architect with iDesign, he is also the Microsoft Regional Director for Virginia. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Newly appointed, I might add. And a Microsoft MVP with over 14 years of programming, engineering, and project management experience as of this recording. We'll come back to this in about 40 years and we'll see. <laughs> Brian specializes in, see how young we were? Brian specializes in smart client architecture and development, presentation tier technologies, including Windows Presentation Foundation, Windows Forms, and ASP.NET, and data access. Brian's latest book is Data Binding in Windows Forms 2.0 for Addison Wesley. And he is working on smart client deployment with ClickOnce. And you can uh, see Brian at Dev Connections and TechEd, TechEd Malaysia, uh, DevTeach, and he's a top-rated speaker on the Inetta Speakers Bureau, and you can hear him on this show right now. Here he is, <laughs> Brian Noyes. Hi, Brian. Hey, how's it going? You would think that uh, in my own bio I could at least get the name of my book correct, but it's... Uh it's actually data binding with Windows Forms oh. 2.0. I, I make that mistake all the time, and I apparently made it in my own bio there. So, Data binding, data binding. Yeah. Ouch. That's a, that's a word that a lot of programmers, strict <laughs> fear in the heart of programmers, does it? Well, no, we've been making fun of data binding since Visual Basic 3. When we actually had a reason to make fun of it, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. It was so very mockable. It was. There's been a lot of pain in that space. Well, the, the goal for Microsoft in, in the early days of VB was to get a killer demo that you could sell VB with, right? So you get that data control, you slap it on there, and boom, look at this. You're editing data, and everybody goes, ooh. Great for demos, yes. not so great for production apps. So and the reason well, as long for, as your production app only has 200 rows of data, it works fine. Right? Yeah, and there's, only, and there's only one person accessing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, the reason that, it, that it's always been a problem is because you always have this direct pipeline from the user interface to the database without any chance to do, to get in the middle and do anything there and without any control really exactly so you lose control and the data what i what i like about the data binding stuff that we're talking about on DNR today and in DNR TV this week is that uh, there's several layers of indirection right out of the bat so you have a lot more control exactly right? yeah they between the, uh, the the experience when you're putting it together in Visual Studio, they do a lot of good code generation, so it's not bad code generation that yeah. is hard to back out. Um, and then just the framework capabilities with the new binding source component to put some indirection between the bound controls and the data sources, being able to bind against any kind of object with the same ease that you bind against databases. Uh, there's just a lot of choices there. So what's the typical uh, range of things that you can do with data binding, starting with like, uh, you know, the, the G-Wiz stuff? How, how easy is it? And what uh, do you get? What's the, what's the new stuff all about? Well, literally in, you know, in a few seconds or a few minutes maximum, you can do some quick drag and drop in Visual Studio and have a client server type app that's bound directly to the database. Uh, but the data access code is part of your Windows Forms project. 
It's in a type data set definition, so it's separated out at least into a different class within your project. Mm-hmm. It's not interwoven into the form code the way it used to be. And uh, and just through zero code written by hand, basically, you can have a, a data-driven app that supports updates and two-way data binding. Um, if you want to kind of go to a little bit level of a little bit better level of indirection, having uh, your data access code separated out into a separate layer, then you just put that data access code into a separate class library. Mm-hmm. You set a reference to that class library, and now those are just objects that you bind to. And whether they're custom objects or or uh, type data sets, the experience is the same. So, in other words, instead of binding, picking a database, which which is what you would do when you bind in uh, you know using the the GWiz wizard thing, you bind to a class. Correct. And that class is the type data set that was generated by the data source. Exactly. And, and and what's going on behind the scenes when you do that is it's just pointing to the type definition for that class, which happens to be a type data set, and it's reflecting on the row, uh, the, the strongly typed row type and looking for public properties. And if you hmm. point to just some cu- custom object, it does the same thing. It looks at the type definition, says what are the public properties. Those are the things that are eligible for data binding. Yeah. What um what you know the biggest problem I think in data binding in one point one dot net one point one isn't so much that you you're separated from you're not separated from the database because you are you know you have a data set that you you bring data into and you can bind to the data set so you have that separation already but um the problem is little weird things that happen with the UI right you know like little events happen and things on the screen change when you didn't mean them to change and they get updated. And it's sort of like a domino effect. Like you have a series of dominoes all set up to react and things that you didn't intend to happen will happen. So you have to end up unbinding at certain right. times when you want to do things and, and then rebinding. Is, is that any better? It's, it's definitely better. Yeah. I, I think what you're describing there, I would class classify as kind of the broad set of, synchronization problems that people have with bound controls. Right. So whether you have multiple controls on one form that are all bound to the same data source or whether you have a data source that is has multiple related sets of data, say a parent and a child table type scenario, yeah. and trying to keep changes both at the UI level and programmatic changes under the cover and have the UI do the right thing, whatever that is, right. uh, it, it was just always hard to get that put together. And um, specifically between some new uh, interface definitions in, in .NET 2.0, there's a new interface called I Notify Property Change that lets your individual objects notify whatever their container is, whether it's a collection or a bound control, say, hey, somebody poked me. You right. know, they changed a property on me. You may want to do something about so it. So instead of refreshing an entire binding context, now an individual class can say, hey, I've, my dirty flag was raised. Exactly. Here's the new data. And you, you'll find individual controls updating rather than the entire. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then to also help well, support that. Just that idea of being able to hold off doing that update until you get a sense that the guy's done. Right. right. You know, <laughs> it used to be every time you change anything, the whole thing twitched. Right. Right. Just to be able to wait a little bit. Hang on, there's more stuff coming. Just give me a second, and then we'll go ahead. Yep. And then, uh, you know, also just kind of the, the keeping multiple controls synchronized, that gets easier with this new binding source component because it wraps your data source. It puts a layer of indirection there, and it can raise these events, and you can turn things on and off, such as editability or, you know, being able to page through the records, and it's all just right there in one API against the binding source component. The binding source. What is the closest equivalent in today in uh, in .NET one point one? Um, you can think of this thing if you've dove into data binding in one point one. There's these things under the covers called a binding context, and there's different kinds of binding contexts. If you're dealing with collections or objects, called a currency manager or a property manager. That goo is all still down there at the form level. They've just wrapped it all for you in the binding source component. Yeah, and so it's a combination of the context and does it also have uh, is it also extensible so that you can? Sure. Um, it, I, what it has internally is it maintains its own list and, and it acts as a pass-through mechanism to your data source. So if your data source is a type data set or a custom collection of objects, it looks at that data source and says, what does this thing expose in terms of those data binding interfaces? And it will just act as a pass-through to your data source. But it's even smart enough to consume other data sources that are not quite smart enough themselves to deal with 
uh, Windows Forms data binding. That's great. Kind of the, the minimum bar to do Windows data binding is to implement the iList interface. Yeah. But some collections don't even do that. If you take something like a hash table, it doesn't implement right. iList. Mm. But you can point to something like a hash table or a data reader, for example, does not implement iList. Right. But you can point to a data list, uh, data reader, it does implement iEnumerable, and mm. the binding source is smart enough to look at that and go, well, it doesn't support this whole list-based thing, but I can iterate over it, grab all its objects, and put it into my own list, and it'll actually maintain the data collection itself internally. That's great. And, of course, because— it's very it's, smart, actually. Yep. A yep. lot of people actually did this on their own. It, it's one of those good ideas that if you go out there and a lot of people doing data, data binding intensive apps in 1.1— a lot of them created their own binding source. They may not have called it that, but you look at what they did, you, you go, oh, that's like the binding source in 2.0. You know who comes to mind is Billy Hollis. We inter- we interviewed him um, about the uh, Windows Forms, long, you know, 2.0. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he data binding, he, he didn't do it. I mean, he saw it in 1.0. It didn't work for him. So he went ahead and wrote his own basic mechanism that used events. Right. And uh, come .NET 1.1, he stuck with it because it was working just fine, and you know that, and that's sort of what happened. A lot of people, as you say, wrote their own. Exactly. What um, so uh, and and I guess because the binding source exists and it's another yet another layer of indirection, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to to do some really nice things in that binding source going forward. It, how about extensibility? Is the binding source extensible? I mean, it's just another class, right? So, yeah, it's really just a component class. So it inherits from component. It gives it a designer experience. So they show up on your form in the non-visual components tray. You can select them, set properties on them, hook up events, and do all the designer interaction. But it's really just it, it's a component. It's a class that yeah. has some properties, has some methods, has some uh, events of interest to do with that deal with that underlying data source. Uh, maintaining the context of what's the current record and navigating through those those items, but uh, otherwise, uh, there's not a lot of extensibility in terms of. I, I suppose you could in- inherit from it and do other things with it, but usually you're going to use it as is. Right, as is, just handling the events. Yep. Um, we've had people on the show who have been bullish on data binding, and uh, Deb Carada was talking about object binding, but you know she's not a fan of type data sets. She was. Right. In particular, she looked at all of the code that got generated by the typeset, type data set designer, uh, even in .NET 2.0, and she said, oh, my God, that's a lot of code. Um, even with the advent of partial classes that allows you to separate your logic in a type data set sure. into a completely separate class so it doesn't get whacked by the code generator, uh, that still wasn't enough. So what do you, how do you answer that? You know, I'm I'm not sure what the uh, you know what the issue is with it, it is a lot of code. It's intimidating if you go in and try and figure out what it is. But if you do a good hard analysis of what's in there, there's a lot of functionality there. Um, it doesn't really if you don't use it, it doesn't really hurt you. It's a minor little impact to your working set, right? But uh, you know, it's insignificant in the big scheme of things. And if you, if you need it, it's there. So I would rather have the functionality and be able to use it when I need it uh, than have to go spin my own every time. And a lot of that uh, code that's generated is data specific, so it's right. duplicated for all the different fields and things that you're that you're working with. So it actually looks a lot bigger than yeah. Than and it that's really a good is. point. I think that's true of code generation in in general. Is yeah. that when you're going to generate code, it, it's kind of coming for free, and so that there's not as much point in trying to sort of refactor things and make sure it's all centralized and stuff. But the, the team actually did quite a bit of work. Uh, in 2.0 trying to make sure that the code that's generated in those type data sets from the ADONet team's perspective and from the Windows Forms team perspective, who helped kind of co-own this this part of the environment, mm. um, they both you know tried to optimize that to be considered best practice code. So it's a lot of code, but it is good code, code that's generated. Well, I also think of someone like Deb, who you know comes from the let's build objects for everything uh you know, has had a lot of success doing that model, and right. and that that model clearly is 
very easy for you know her to understand because she does it so much. So you think that there's a lot of other people out there that uh, that are intimidated by data sets that that aren't going to look at uh, data binding with type data sets? And, and what do you say to that? Well, uh, you know, I, I like data sets as a good starting point. Yeah. You know, you kind of got to have a good starting point for the general case, and then you got to look at each specific case. And so data sets are not perfect for every scenario. What um, are the scenarios that they are perfect for? When you have data that's inherently, you know, collections of simple objects, not a lot of hierarchical relationships, right. not a lot of complex uh, logic that needs to get carried around with those objects. Yeah. You know, you're just pushing data around, then the, the data set is optimized for that. The thing that always comes up uh, when people start saying, well, I prefer custom objects, I'm just going to do that. It is a lot easier in .NET 2.0 to do that because of some of the generic classes for yeah. collections. Class designer. Uh, class designer helps you generate things. Uh, now you got code rush. Code rush, uh, snippets. code snippets. Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier to get those custom objects in place. But the one place it always breaks down is, you know, they get it all put together. It's like, okay, great. I got my data into my form. It's just as easy with objects. Why would I ever want data sets? Right. They say, okay, what's next on the requirements list? Well, I need to filter my data and I need to sort it and yeah. I need to search it. Yeah. Oops. There are no inherent implementations of that for custom objects, even in the generic types. you got to spin your own, so and that, it's and, not trivial. And that's where something like Link comes in really, really uh, sure. is going to help out a lot, yeah, as absolutely. Barry was talking about last week. Yeah, specifically the, the sorting, searching type of stuff would be a lot easier with Link with custom objects and memory. It's just very cool. I mean, in on both sides of the equation, on the data set side, it's getting better, and on the object side, it's getting better. This, it's really... What what really struck me? We just uh, recorded DNR TV for this week too, and and I and I watched these demos. What really struck me was the the rich nature of the user interface in Visual Studio when dealing with data sources for UI purposes, right? For binding, yeah. Why don't you describe that a little bit? Sure. I mean, they put this new control panel, if you will. It's a window within Visual Studio called the Data Sources Window. And regardless of whether you're going direct against a database or working with a, a data set coming out of a data layer, business objects coming out of a business layer, uh, objects coming over web services, the experience is exactly the same. It's a consistent process you go through where you point to a data source through some form of reference, say these are the objects within that reference that I want to use as my data objects, and then from there in the, you drag and drop from the data sources window onto your form and it generates controls for you or it hooks up existing controls to those data sources. And I love the fact that you can just enable and disable the fields that you want or don't want and whether you want a grid or or uh, a detail view. Right. You have complete control both at the collection level and the individual uh, either column or property level depending on whether you're talking data sets or objects. But you can say for each one of those things, what is the specific control that's mapped to that thing? What do you want to be generated when you drag it onto the form? And it will do some automatic formatting, like in the uh, in the demos we show something like a, a image column from a database, which shows up in the .NET world as just a byte array. You can point that to a picture box, and it'll figure out and say, oh, well, I've got this thing called an image converter down in the framework. I know how to convert from byte arrays to images. So I'll just do that for you, and you don't have to write any code. So you just point that. I mean, this sounds like one of those great demo technologies. It must look fabulous to show. It, so when does it not work? When does it not work? Well, it, it really depends on how much work you do up front in getting your data into your app. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is they want to bring their whole big, messy, ugly data schema into the UI layer, which is a mistake in the first place. Yeah. Um, right. So if Especially you, if they don't need it, you know? Exactly. So yes, we if, might need it. So let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you choose to do that and you've got things like many to many relationships, there's nothing inherently in, in data binding that handles many to many. Handles master details or parent child relationships very well. There's a similar drag drop experience for that where you can drag a parent collection onto the form, drag a, a child collection onto the form. It hooks everything up perfectly for, for master details. But if you've got a you know a many to many type scenario now, there's no designer way to do it, but there's still a very clean model for it using that binding source component and some of the events it raises. Um, I talk about that in in an article I wrote in Code Magazine and in my book. Um, but you know there's ways to handle these things, but it's not a a pure draggy droppy you know kind of simple demo scenario. 
Yeah. Well, and I really like the idea that you stage sort of the planning of what your form is going to be like before you start plunking things on the form. Exactly. That you get a chance to 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 tweak it and tune. I can just, you know, you get through this iteration where, and then you drop the control on, you're not happy with what it, what you got, so you get rid of it, you tweak some more, and then drop again until you finally get the results you really wanted. Yeah, and it, it also supports kind of the model. Another question that comes up is, you know, some shops don't do that. They have designers that lay out the whole form first and say, Here's you go. Here you go. Here's what it needs to look like. Now make data happen. Right. And it does support right. that now as go well. Go hook it up. Yeah. And and it supports all the hookup through drag and drop, which is pretty nice. Um, but yeah, it does give you a lot better iterative approach to getting things hooked up. And uh, as we were showing in the demos on on the TV episode, it's also pretty good about cleaning up after itself. So if you change your mind and you select things and delete them. It actually does clean up its own code, which uh, was not always the case in the in past. In the form designer. Right. Or in the whatever designer you're using. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What you don't want to see is doing iterative development, which is a very natural way to work, where you're trying things repeatedly, that you're accumulating debris over time. Yeah. Exactly. So that eventually, when you get the right one, there's so much garbage attached to the form now you really want to start over again yep exactly there might be even there might be a, a plugin that you could do with dx core now that i think about it to remove dead code to remove code that's on maybe that's a refactoring that's built into c sharp i don't know uh not built in no remove code that isn't accessed yeah that's that sounds like something they would be able to do i mean that dx sure. core is pretty amazing and uh, makes it a lot cleaner for doing that kind of extensibility yeah so what kinds of apps do you, um, you, you, you obviously at iDesign work with customers who, who are architecting and designing things. So you must go into these situations and, and see their, what they're trying to do and determine whether or not, you know, this data binding data sets or data objects is going to work for them. Exactly. So that's... what are the kinds of, what are the kinds of applications that lend themselves more to building, uh, classes? I mean, we talked about what, what you know, what data set, where data sets make sense. Where do business objects make sense? Well, there's, you know, there's a couple of ways to slice it. A lot of times, really what drives the decision is different companies have an inherent bias one way or the other. That's true. Um, and that bias often drives the show. But, you know, as far as real technical reasons for it, you can ultimately you can accomplish the same thing either with type data sets or with custom objects. In most cases, In, you're saying? In just about every case, you could bend and twist a data set to do what you wanted, or you could, you know, make a, a custom object just as capable as the data set. Right. But it's it really has to do with how much work you have to do to make that happen, and when do you do that work. Mm. The reason I favor type data sets as a good starting point is you have to do a lot less work up front to yes. get basic functionality working. Right. Uh, now, where it starts to become uncomfortable is if you need to take that type data set and start adding a whole bunch of logic, right. start having really complex hierarchical relationships. Now you have to understand all the events and when they happen and exactly. how to use those. And, yeah. and, and it's just, it's really not a, it doesn't feel to me even, even though I like type data sets, it doesn't feel like a clean programming model yeah. because of the fact that you're always having to reach down through the data set, through the data table to yes. get to those individual objects. Yeah. So that's another discriminator I kind of use is, is the app dealing with lots of individual objects and passing those around, or is it dealing with lots of just flat collections? Yeah. And if it's flat collections, my first instinct is to go data set. But, uh, it strikes me that the data set approach is much more client-server. If I've got a really robust database, and more importantly, a robust database team that's mm -hmm. got a lot of functionality back there already, that I don't have to worry about embedding it into my code near as much... Uh, business objects is overkill. All I really want is the, these data tables to work with. Exactly. It's it's where you put the, uh, you know, I, I try to steer people to making it so the data that comes into their app already looks like business entities, as I like to say. Hmm. You know, so have the stored procedure layer. Right. Give me back logical data sets that I don't want to know what the underlying data schema is. Right, right. Just give, right. Me, give me something that looks like what I want to deal with in my app, and I don't have to do a bunch of manual denormalization in my yeah. middle tier. Right. And so, it, But if I do have to do that, then I want business objects. So it, it comes back to me, strength of team. If I've got a really strong set of data guys who are going to write some great stored procedures to present a business object-like interface against the database, data, you know, type data sets all the way. Right. But if I don't have that strength and the database is largely just a collection of tables, 
Not a lot of that functionality back there. I want those business objects to do that roll-up for me, to do that cleaning for me. Well, the interesting thing is, though, I mean, I approach it a different way sometimes, and that is if you choose to go the business objects route, even if you do have that scenario you just talked about where you're going to have to do a lot of work in the middle tier or in your app to to turn it into business entities, um, the work that you do to do that means that you go out and you execute data queries, you get back result sets, you iterate over those result sets, and you push the data into these business objects. Right. You can do the same thing with type data sets. You know, you can define your own sure. type data sets that have the right shape that look like business entities, and you can just go get raw data readers and use that to push it, you know, grab the individual parts you really want and push those into type data sets. But what happened, what, where, where it starts to break down is where, where, as you said, you have a lot of logic. What, right. Is this the right time to do this? Can I do this? Can I not do this? Right. You know, no, I can't. Now, how do I, you know, send those signals up the chain? Right. All of those things turn into, uh, you know, you're working around the data set model. Exactly. Whether, rather than you can just implement a method or an interface and boom, you've got what you want. Yep. So, like I said, the kind of the key discriminators for me are, are you dealing with lots of individual objects as opposed to collections? If so, having to go through the, the data set to the data table to the individual data row feels really cumbersome after a while if you're dealing with lots of individual row objects. This portion of .NET Rocks brought to you by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.telerik.com. Well, now what about a hybrid solution where you have, and I've, I've done this myself, where you have a business object that has you know some of the logic in it, but for the data, you go down into an attached type data set, and you can refer to that type data set in the object and process the logic in the in the business object. Absolutely, and that's that's actually a great solution that a lot of people use. I just worked with a customer last week that had that, where they go initially, they get data tables to present you know grids of objects for people to select from, basically get the metadata about the the objects that are going to be worked worked with. And then once someone selects one of those objects to interact with it in some way, now you actually go do a separate retrieval to get the underlying detailed data about that object, and you bring it back as custom objects. And yeah. those custom objects have all the validation Because uh, those code. are the ones you're going to work with. Right. They, yeah. they have the save logic. They know how to take this thing that you know just looks like a simple object to the application, but really translates to 50 different tables down at the, at the database level. Right. So that's a good way, is it? actually, and that's... For complex applications, that's usually where you end up is you can't do pure data sets or pure objects. You could do pure objects. Yeah. And you could do pure data sets, but it rarely is going to be a clean solution throughout for a complex app. Interesting. Hey, why don't you uh, take us through what, what, what the, you know, briefly an overview of what you showed on DNR TV, what you're showing this week? Sure. Um, in the, in the data binding session, what we did is we stepped through and started with a very simple data-bound app where we just did simple drag-and-drop of the employees table from Northwind onto a form, mm -hmm. showed all the uh, control generation, the fact that it hooked up all the code, generated binding sources and binding navigators. and You didn't have to write one line of code. Not one line of code for the simple, you know, client-server-ish type application. For the GWiz, woo-hoo woo kind of right. if it's, demo. Right. If it's just a push and pull and manipulate data type app with no logic associated with the data, right. you can get away with that and, right. and, and not layered out at all. Okay. Um, then we said, okay, that's great, but usually you want some degree of layering, so at a minimum you're going to separate out your data access layer. All right. And so then we took and put our type data sets in a separate class library, showed how you hook that up, and it's very similar other than just adding a reference and saying, now I'm hooking up to objects instead of a database. The only other thing you had to do, code you had to write, was code to set the data source and and uh, and, and and retrieve the data from the object. Exactly, because as soon as you step out into either the web service or the object arena and say, that's where I'm getting my data, it says, okay, that's great. You can tell me what kind of object I'm going to be dealing with, but it's going to be up to you to figure out where to get it because that API that you're going against could have 20 different methods that get back that same object type, and it doesn't know which of those to call. Yeah. So you have to write the you know two, three lines of code 
to actually go create an instance of the service or create an instance of the uh, factory that you're going to get the object type from and then get back an object type and set that as the data source on the binding source. So then what was the next project you did? Uh, the next one, we stepped out another layer of abstraction and said, okay, now we have a business layer that we're binding to. Somewhere under it, it's, it's doing data access. We don't care about that. We're just going to bind to custom objects. And so we pointed to a couple different object types, products and, and suppliers, and the, the process for hooking it up in the Windows form is pretty much the same. You add a reference to the class library, you point to the type definitions, say these are the objects I'm working with, and then you write a couple of lines of code to go actually get instances of those at runtime. And you had to implement an interface in the objects, too, in order to get the dirty flag notification, right? Right. So as soon as you step into that custom object arena, now you have to think of things both from the, the consumer perspective, which is the form, in which case it's almost no different. But from the implementer, you know, the middle tier programmer basically is going to have to do the right things with those custom object definitions to make them happy with data binding. Yeah. And the final one was? Uh, the final one was stepping out to web services and saying, now we have a distributed smart client app. It's going to get its data over the wire from some backend service. And uh, again, it's just a different step through the wizard kind of thing. Say, here's my reference to my web service. That web service returns objects that have a given shape based on their WSDL. Uh, and those uh, those objects uh, come from the DLL that you made in demo two, right? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. all I'm doing in the in the web service is is wrapping those custom business objects and returning those via web services. Cool. And and the whole thing we did it in an hour, and and I was actually less than an hour. It was like forty yeah. forty five minutes. I was commenting that you know I do these these uh, demos in, in a hands-on class, and it takes, you know, a long time, five, sure. five six hours in .NET 1.1 and in .NET 2.0, it only takes uh, a few hours to do it hands-on, you know, two or three. So about right. about half the time to do the same kind of stuff from going from 1.1 to 2.0. That's sure. pretty well, awesome. Well, 1.1, one, one, of course, also had the, uh, you know, whiz-bang, draggy-droppy kind of demo you could do there, and, and it was just as quick, but the sure. end result was even more ugly. Yeah. Um, and so you're right. To, to actually do it the way you would want it in a production app took a many hours longer in uh, .NET 1.1 world. Yeah. So that's going to take that's going to take us to uh, DNR TV. And if you haven't watched DNR TV yet, and this stuff interests you, you're all about data binding. See it in action. Take a look at www.dnrtv.com. That's right. It's a 1024 by 768 uh, full screen uh, demo where interview style. So I'm interviewing Brian, and he's actually showing you how to do the code. And it's all flash. It's very easy. Uh, you can also download the AVI files if you want to using uh, the Camtasia TechSmith codec. And now, Brian, yes. you are the ClickOnce god. Yes, you are. <laughs> and you've been talking about it for years. Tell me, does this product actually exist now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm glad to say finally it is a release technology. I, I for, oh, for what it goodness. does, I have probably talked about it too much. But, and, and Richard, when he did the demo, it was the very first time that a click once demo has worked in my presence. <laughs> <laughs> the so man, we're going to get a DNR TV of this click once as well. The man is a genius. <laughs> but, well, he was only, I figured he was the only one who actually knew how any of it ever worked because I've seen him do this at conferences yeah. for, what, two years now? Yeah, yeah. And now it's a real product, so regular mortals can do this too. Uh, but maybe you better start at the beginning. Tell would, us yeah. about really what ClickOnce is all about. Well, I would say start with the problem. What's the problem that it addresses? Yeah. Well, the problem is, you know, there's always this friction between wanting to give the users the best experience possible, but having something that you can maintain, deploy, and not have to spend countless mount hours uh, doing your maintenance. Right. And so... In a corporate environment, particularly, you know, lots of development organizations choose to make web apps because they say, look, I can walk up to a single server, and if I need to deploy an update or deploy a whole new application, I just drop some files on the server and I'm done. Right. And it's just up to right. the users and the to point their The next time they hit browse. it, it's there. Right. So basically what ClickOnce is trying to do is say, yeah, that's good. We like that model a lot, and we really want that. But we also want our end users to have a rich client app, a full right. Windows app. The browser was never meant to be a platform for hosting applications. Right. It's not an interactive environment. Uh, it, it's all it can a kludge, be bent. man. Yeah. 
And it's bent further and further in more interesting ways with things like Atlas and stuff, which right. is a great technology. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's making it more and more seamless and you're still always going to need those. So, uh, right. but, you know, specifically it's there to address that space, give you the best of both worlds, give you the good user experience, but the ease of maintenance of deploying apps. I also tell people that, you know, the web came of age at the time when Windows DLL hell was at its pinnacle. Absolutely. And so, you know, it was, we, we were just looking for an excuse. Exactly. But then we should have learned from the Java experience, <laughs> you know, that that's. It's people, got its own set of pains that it come does. with it. Right. Yep. So if you want a rich experience, so that's why I think, you know, things like Flash have really flourished yep. in the web because they come close to giving, you know, instant feedback and, and good good UI, but uh, but it's still, you know, it's not .NET and we can't program it like we can program .NET. Right, exactly. So, I mean, ClickOnce gives you a way to create a, a fully interactive, rich Windows application, takes full advantage of the capabilities of the client machine and a way to get that thing onto the user's desktop with no administrative interaction at all. Just no, let the end yeah. user point to a, a URL, and it's done. It's up and running on their machine. And automatic updates and, and everything else is exactly. all taken care of. And I more guess that's the key. Is it's not just the initial deployment. It's every time I run this app, the new version comes to me. I don't want to think about it. I don't want it to do anything. It just comes to me. Exactly. So before you go into how great ClickOnce is, let's <laughs> talk about how it has been attempted in the previous two versions of .NET and not quite made it. Exactly. There's there's other alternatives out there. There's, uh, there was a technology which never quite took on a single name. It, it's been called <laughs> by many things, including no-touch deployment, HRF-XE deployment, zero-touch deployment. and Auto-deployment. Auto-deployment. There's a few others out there. That's been around actually since .NET 1.0. It got a minor improvement in 1.1. Uh, it has been used, it, basically it's the same concept where you drop some files on a server, you give a URL to the users, they they click on the URL, and it launches a Windows app on their machine. Um, but there wasn't a lot of flexibility in the model, and you had to go to some fairly significant workarounds to get it to be usable for serious apps. Security, biggest point. Security right? I mean, and update behaviors. Update behavior, Control yeah. over the updating process. Right. You know, the, one of the, the models of, of automatic updates that I use is Let's Rotors Reflector. Yeah. Simple. You run it. It says, hey, there's a new version. You want it? You say no. It uses the current version. You say yes. <laughs> it downloads a new one. You're running it. Funny you should mention that. Actually, that's that's an interesting, uh, you know, example to use because I've I've traded emails with, with Let's before because he's got one aspect of his up update behavior that is not click once like mm. um, that I wish he did have. And that is, have you ever grabbed an old version of Reflector you have in your little, you know, directory of programs on a newly built machine, slapped it on the machine, and then hopped onto an airplane and fired it up to do work. Ah, uh, so it doesn't check to see you have a connection, it, right? It requires that if it is out of date, it has to have a connection to do an update before it will allow you to oh, run. Oh, that's not good. So that is one of the other Ouch. big things that ClickOnce addresses is the ability to run offline. By the way, Lutz, if you're listening, <laughs> come on my damn show, will you? <laughs> Last time I asked you, go, oh, no one wants to hear me talk. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? Oh, he's got the most amazing tool out there. It's you're like, how God. do we live without we, this thing? We want you. We <laughs> want you, Lutz. Call me. Yeah, this is not a critique of Reflector in any way. Just uh, I, I wish I could. Uh, it's only bit me once or twice, but I'd get on a plane and be like, Oh, I should have fired this up once while I was connected. Right. But uh, yeah. yeah, so click once does uh, solve that kind of problem as well. And it was a limitation of the no-touch deployment right. uh, before. You always had to have a connection to the deployment server. Yes. Um, other options that were out there and actually still are, there's a thing called the updater application block. Yep. And there was something that preceded it called, just to make it confusing, called app updater. So you have to kind of go dyslexic to figure out which one you're really talking about. And I actually wrote my own, too. <laughs> I, I actually wrote my own update system that uses zip files. Sure, sure. And it works great. Yep. So updater application block is still out there. It's by patterns and practices. And it requires you to do a one-time install on the on the client machine. Um, there are ways to use it in conjunction with NoTouch, uh, kind of a lightweight version. But uh, to get the, the full functionality, you need a one-time install. But then you've got similar flexibility on updates where you can have on-demand updates, you can have scheduled updates, right. you can control when those updates occur in the background, on the foreground, how, you know, however you want it to happen. And that one is still actually viable even in a click-once environment because 
since it is an installed presence, um, it has different security rules the way it runs, and you can actually do some more advanced things such as running pre- and post scripts uh, that go out and add registry keys or create databases. You can't do that kind of thing directly with ClickOnce. Okay, so take us through a typical ClickOnce publication. How does it work? All right. Uh, basically, you know, trivial little step, you have to build your app. Okay. <laughs> That's step easy. One. Step one. Uh, have no, an idea. step one is write your app. Well, step I guess two is build your app. Step one is have an idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Figure out how to implement it. Step one is learn how to program. <laughs> so just a, a little little prerequisite there going into click once is you have to have something meaningful to deploy. Yeah. Once you get over that little hurdle. It better be good, too. <laughs> Once you get past that little speed bump, uh, it's got to be .NET. Yes. Well, actually, there are tricks. I, I helped a I helped a customer uh, put together a ClickOnce deployment for a VB6 app recently. Wow. So. Oh, wow. Cool. There are ways to do that. Um, you're tricking the system a little bit, but basically, ClickOnce just copies files for you. So if one of the files that happy, happens to copy is a VB6 executable, and then launches it with a process.start. Hmm. Now you got a, a VB6 run, app running through Click Once. Wow! Um, but yeah, so you got to have an app to deploy, and then basically you can deploy it in either manually or using Visual Studio. Okay. And so most of the demos you'll see, including the one uh, we put together on DNR TV, is uh, using Visual Studio to publish the application. That'll be next week. And what uh, the publishing of an application means is moving the files, taking the uh, the application and all its files, and putting it onto that that server. So. Conceptually, again, it's it's the same as just walking up to a server, dropping some files on there, and it's ready to go. Okay. Once you there's two extra things that get generated in that step, and they're called manifests. There's a deployment manifest and an application manifest, and Visual Studio will do all this automatically for you. But in a production environment, one of the questions that always comes up is, "That's great, but I'm not going to publish to my production servers from my developer Visual Studio machine." Yeah. So there is a manual way to do this, and it literally involves just copying files, uh, running a little SDK tool to update the manifests, and you're done. Wow. Once it's on the server, now it's ready to actually be deployed. So we talk about that's publishing. The deployment happens from an end-user perspective. And all you do is you give them a link. So from an end-user perspective, it's just as easy as using the web. They get a link via an email, a link on a portal website, a shortcut on their desktop. And unlike href exe, this is a link to an htm file that's been generated where they can launch the program, right? There's actually a couple different URLs you can give them that will all end up in the same place. Okay. And, and the place they really end up is it's a URL to the deployment manifest on the deployment server. Okay. Um, it can be through the publish htm that's generated. It right. can be through the setup.exe bootstrapper file. You could uh, just give them a link in an email or something. Yeah, but yeah. typically, you know, you'll just give them a link in an email to the deployment manifest, which has a dot application uh, file extension. Mm -hmm. And they click on that link. And what happens behind the scenes at that point is uh, click once on the client machine. So it does mean that .NET 2.0 has to be on the client machine. There's right. a way to get that out there. Um it goes and sees it's got a file mapping says, oh, a dot application file, that's click once. I'm going to go out to that address. I'm going to look in that manifest, say, what is this thing? What are the files in the application? Pull all those down, cache them under the user's profile, and launch the app. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Now, a couple of questions that immediately come to mind. One is the um, URL that if you, if you give them a URL directly to the manifest and they don't have .NET installed, now you're in trouble. But if you give them a link to a page that says you know, here's my application, click here to download, which is the way I go pretty right. much discover files. Uh, then then if they don't have the, what happens if they don't have the, the framework installed at that point? Uh, what you'd probably want to do in that case is do what that publish HTM is that, that Visual Studio generates. It's got some JavaScript that looks at the user agent string and the headers and nice. says, do they have .NET 2.0? And if not, it presents different links um, and specifically, it points them to this setup.exe that's generated, and that's called the the bootstrapper. 
And the bootstrapper is just a fancy wrapper around multiple MSI files. So you can configure the bootstrapper and say, what are the prerequisites for this app? And the bootstrapper does not require .NET. It's just a pure Correct. Windows API. It's an app. unmanaged executable that uh, can go out, it runs, and it'll run individual MSI files. So you can say, my app requires .NET 2.0, DirectX, yep. MDAC, my custom installer, whatever. You know, whatever you need. You plug into the bootstrapper. You give them one URL again, in this case, to setup.exe. It's going to see that you know they don't have those things installed. They will have to be an administrator to run that because now it's doing admin-type functions. But it, it allows an end-user type install over the web. And the setup.exe actually just, when it's done running all those MSIs, it does a redirect to the .application file and launches the app. Cool. Now, the how, how, do you, what if you needed something like uh, MSDE installed on the client machine? That would just be a different prereq that you'd wrap into the bootstrapper. And, and they have, uh, in Visual Studio, you go into application files in the project uh, property settings and you just check boxes and say, or I'm sorry, not application files, but prerequisites. And you just check boxes for, they've got about 10 to 20 things that are already in the list. And you can add your own custom installers to that list nice. as well. Now, what happened? So after I've got MSD installed, what about the database itself? Ah, well. Good uh, question. Yeah, okay. Yeah, excellent question. So ClickOnce has this concept of data files being separate from the application files. And, and there's separate APIs where you can programmatically manage this stuff. You can deploy something like a uh, a SQL Express file, yeah, which is MDF. just an MDF, MDF, as a data file, and there's a model for doing that. But it does get a little complicated for updates. Um, and so there's That's a white right. there's a white paper out on MSDN that talks about this because uh, you don't want it to overwrite your data with the default data exactly. You, yeah. Because the right. update behavior is every time it sees there's an update there, it's going to pull down the update and it's going to just you know kind of move these data files, the default behavior is it moves the data file from the previous version into the new version. But if the new version has a new one of those data files, it's going to take the new version's data file. Mm. So in the case of right. an MDF file, it says, yeah, that's great. You got this uh, other database there, but there's a new one of those. So I'm going to use the new one. Well, well it's, what happens if you need the schema of the new one and the data of the old one? Well, now that's where you start getting heartburn, and, right? And that's typically what you want because that old right. one actually is not so old. It's got user data in right. it that they've been manipulating. Right. So uh, the recommended practice here to, to work around this, you, there's ways to make it work, even just with the normal model. Sounds like you need to be a distributed application at that point, though, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, inherently, you are a distributed app if you're doing... I mean, your database should be man central. I mean, oh, uh, um, it's, a good, it's a good case to make for, for having a central database. Uh, yes and no. I mean, if you're talking about something like user preferences, you know, com well, okay. complex user preferences, yeah. let's say, something well, along just the whole disconnected, replicated salesperson on an airplane kind of model where he needs a local data yes, store. Yes, exactly. But Offline caching is... Back to the main. But with that, you could just save a data set or an, to an XML file or, or serialize an object to a file. Uh, you know, that's what I would do for for that kind of caching. Yeah. I, it, I would... I, you know, it's been a long time since I've thought about using a local database as I would like an accessor well, with, uh, with, uh, with SQL Express and, and more specifically SQL Mobile now, mm. they're it, it really depends on the complexity of the data, but but what we're talking about is is supporting offline data caching scenarios, and right. it really just says you know how complex is your data and in what form do you want to store it when you cache it. But if that form of storage happens to be a database, a, a SQL Express database, now you get into these data file issues, right? And there is a, a particular sequence where if you do the wrong thing, you can end up blowing away the user's data. Mm. And so there's a, a better workaround to this is to not actually deploy the database itself as as a data file, but you deploy a script that runs oh. and if the database isn't there it creates the database sure if the database is there it just migrates the data over to the new schema that makes total sense and so that's kind of the way to address that scenario with that's, a that's a pop that's a pop yeah exactly there you go but i mean the main and the main thing i hear you saying here brian is you always want to only have one install i don't want an initial deployment install and then an update install right i want my script to be smart enough to say is there a database existing at all? Well, no. Okay, well, here's a script that does everything. Well, yes. What version have I got? Well, here's the script to update to the current version. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So uh, do you have to have Internet Information Server installed in order to, in other words, do you have to host these files on an IIS machine? 
No, the server side is actually could be a Unix server for all, all it cares. The, the real requirements are on the client side. The only thing you have to do on the server side is make sure that the <clears throat> individual application files, which have three different file extensions, make sure those file extensions are mapped by the server to let them out the door. Okay. And, and have the right uh, MIME type when they go out the door. And it'd also probably be a little bit easier with uh, the front page server extensions. Right. If you're publishing from Visual Studio using HTTP, yeah. then you do have to have uh, front page server extensions installed because that's how it does it. It creates the virtual directory for you and plops the files But in you know there. what? If you're managing a Linux machine, you don't care about Visual Studio anyway. You're going to be doing it at the command line. So what do you care? You're not about productivity. You're at not that about point. productivity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, come on, you guys. Face it. The real question is: of the front, are those front page extensions? Are they really just web dev? Because I can certainly put together an Apache server with web dev, and it should work the same way. No, I did actually mm-hmm. confirm with the uh, product team; they are using FPE to create the virtual directory specifically. So, if all it, right, if, so it really that pretty much means if you're going to do this from Studio, it's got to be IIS. Well, yes and no, because the other option you can deploy uh, for publishing, you have four options: you can do HTTP, you can do a UNC file path. You can do FTP, or you can just do a local directory and then manually copy the files. Um, and, in, and again, you get back to this. In a real environment, you're never deploying from studio to production. Exactly. You're going through yeah. some kind of test or pre-production server anyway. And you so, should be, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the tool people should be aware of for that, because ultimately this is all just fancy file copy mechanisms. Right. The only real yeah. manipulation that has to happen when you do that is to update the manifest with appropriate URLs and and sign those manifests with a publisher certificate. Yeah. So there's an SDK tool called Mage. There's actually two. There's a Mage.exe as a command line tool, and a MageUI.exe is a uh, UI editor, and it allows you to open manifests, modify the settings, and resave them and sign them. Um, and how do you, you spell that? Uh, M-A-G-E. It's for manifest generation and editing, I think is what it's short for. All right. We'll Google that and find a link to it before we uh, before we go on, before we publish. Uh, so, you know, another thing that I really love about ClickOnce is the, the fact that you don't have to be connected in order to use your app once you've installed it. Right. So you've got two different install modes you can choose from. One acts just like no-touch deployment where you have to be connected. Uh, but usually people are going to pick the the new version, which is it's available offline as well. Yeah. And when you pick that install mode, besides just copying the files to the client machine and launching the app, it creates a start menu item. And from that start menu item, if you happen to be offline, uh, it will just run the, just the run. local files. It won't even ask you. It won't, exactly. doesn't even care. It just looks and says, can I talk to the deployment server? If not, I'll just run what I got. And then the next time you uh, – if there's an update available, of course – it tells you, would you like to download and install the new one? And if if you say no, you you can still use the version that you have. And Correct. if you stay, say yes, it'll download the new version. One thing I really liked about, um, I love about ClickOnce is the fact that when you go to add and remove programs in the mm-hmm. control panel and you go to remove it. Yeah, you, you have two options there. If it's an installed app like that is you can fully remove the app, which means gets rid of the cache of files. It gets rid of the security policy update it did. Uh, when the app launched based on its permissions, gets rid of the start menu item, and then it removes the add remove programs item itself. So it basically eradicates the thing from the client machine. But it's also got the capability to roll back one version. So if you get this you know, prompt, you go to launch your app, says, hey, there's a new version available. You fire it up, sure, I'll take it. And then you know, it's like, hey, yesterday I could get my work done, today mm-hmm. I cannot. You're not out of luck as a user. <laughs> yeah. You jump into add and remove programs, say roll back to the previous version, and now you're back to the stable version you were using. So cool. And it doesn't litter your That's hard drive with feature. versions. It, it just keeps one version available, exactly. the last it, version. It's got this whole underlying thing. When it does the deployment, it does something called scavenging, and it's looking at uh, you know the new version coming down. It only keeps one back. It figures out what the oldest one is and purges it. You mentioned security. Um, the the cool thing about uh, click once as opposed to other things is uh, you only get prompted as to whether you want to install this program once. I mean, we get prompted now when we're installing an exe from right. uh, from a from a website. And generally, I love. What did you say? Rocky's phrases. Oh, Ro- yeah. Rocky Rocky Laka was in this click once uh, lab out in Redmond with me a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, he was referring to these prompts in the context of ActiveX and, and so on. He said that, you know, look, people are going to press the I want to work today button regardless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, what a great line. Yeah. I want to work today, but He's like, if you give them the option, yeah. they're going to say, I want to work today. Hey, Whatever you, the labeling of that button you, happens to be, they know what it means. Option A, get to work. Option B, go screw yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- that brings us to security. This, um, the, you can just, what happens if the security requirements change? After, you know, in an update, let's say you need to go to the registry and you didn't need to do that before. Right. Now, I know you can just allow full trust, which is what most people will do. Let's face it. If they trust you as a publisher, they're going to trust you 100%. Right. But they might not. You might have corporate policies that prevent, you know, anybody, no matter who sure. they are, from touching the registry or touching security permissions or anything like that. So so what happens if uh, you deploy your your limited trust version, and then you have a new version that comes out that needs to do something else. Basically, anytime an app gets deployed, whether it's an initial deployment or an update, if that app requires more permissions than it already has, which is determined by there's there's entries in the application manifest that say, what are the requested permissions for this app? Mm. Um, it's going to look at what it would be granted by default from the code access security permissions perspective based on the launch URL. So it looks at the address of where this app is coming from, not the fact that it's running from local machine in a cache. Yeah. It says, what would it right. be allowed to do based on that location? And then if it needs more permissions, if it says, yeah, but I need file IO or I need registry permission, yeah. and it's not going to be given that, then the default model is to prompt the user at that point. Mm. Once they say, okay, then they're not going to get prompted again unless a subsequent version comes down that says, oh, and now I also need to make web requests. Yeah. And that wasn't granted before, then they will be reprompted at the point where it needs to acquire more permissions than it already has. Excellent. Now, if the guy's already running in a full trust model, it's not going to bother prompting it all, at Correct. all. It knows it has enough permissions to do it. Right. You can't go beyond full trust. Now, the other option is to pre-install a certificate, which you can get from VeriSign or Komodo or Instant SSL. Exactly. You you always have to sign, regardless of what you do, you always have to sign your manifest with the publisher certificate. Okay. You can do it with a self-generated one, which is what Visual Studio does by default, but you can point to a third-party verified one if you're really pushing apps out to end users. Yeah. And um, if you do that and you don't want user prompting, which a lot of environments, you don't want to put the trust decision in the end user's hand because right. they're going to push the I want to work today button. Yeah. Um, right. And you, you don't want to make in that decision. So if you're in that type of environment, there's this model for trusted publishers where you pre-deploy the publisher certificate into the stores on the client machine, mm-hmm. say this is a trusted publisher, and pretty much any app that shows up signed with that certificate will auto-elevate its permissions to what it needs. Right. Now, you, I, I see most of the time people just moving that to full trust because, again, now you've got – you actually have two levels of trust. You have – the fact that you're going to this website that you've gone to, like it right. hasn't, nobody's forcing you to download this program. You went there because you want their application. They have a public website. It's their ass on the line if they right. screw up your computer, right? So then you also have the certificate from them that's been pre-installed. Why wouldn't you allow them full trust unless it was some sort of corporate policy you know about uh, exactly it just depends on how you know how much protection do you want to give yourself the main thing you're protecting against by not just jumping all the way to full trust is some sort of code injection luring yeah. type of attacks where it's like by design this app should never be touching the registry right why would you ever give it permission you know if somehow someone subverts that app ma- manages to get it to you know load some assembly that they managed to get in the environment especially in this you know click once trusted environment that gets set up, it'd be very difficult to do that. My argument is that when you do that, it all sounds great. And yeah, we would never be able to do that. But how many times have you said, ah, we don't need to trust the registry. And then you go ahead and implement a feature that requires it. And right. now you have to change all your you know settings and exactly. everything else. Issue right. a new certificate. It's a big pain in the ass. So... So I would cons- the first one. I'm not so worried about the registry. My big one would be communicating out on via the web. The mm. ability to propagate would be the thing I'd want to lock down first. Yeah, that's a good point, Richard. Very well, good point. I-, I would say though the you know the kind of default model people should be thinking about for an enterprise environment where it is a you know controlled set of desktops. There's administrators in the loop who are supposed to be care and feeding these machines. 
Uh, what they should really look at is saying, okay, we've got a development organization that pushes out our apps. Yeah. And, and we get other apps perhaps from third-party vendors, and they should have their own publisher certificates. And we have a, a an administrative level of trust with these publishers. So they should be pushing out publisher certificates. There's a registry right. key you can set that disables user prompting. And so that for an enterprise environment, that's really, you know, the best security answer is never put the sure, decision it, in the user's hand, only give trust to, you know, the publishers you know about. Right. So the, basically the IT guys are saying these are the trusted publishers. You can have apps from them. Right. And that's it. Exactly. Brian, what's the uh, URL? Do you have a shrinks to URL to your book, do you? Uh, the Yeah, the data binding book is uh, C22, shrinkster.com slash charlie22. And the name of the book is? Data Binding with Windows Forms 2.0. Now, do you cover ClickOnce at all in this book? or Not in this book. I'm actually working on a separate book for the same series with Addison Wesley that will hopefully be out by late summer called uh, Smart Client Deployment with ClickOnce. And, cool. And it, it should be noted that you wrote this book by yourself, not with a co-author. Correct, yeah. Whole, uh, almost 700 pages. Don't ask me how I came 700 up. 700 pages? Yeah. Actually, you, Billy Hollis just wrote a, a, an article where he referred to it, and he's like, you know, I really like all this new data binding stuff, but it worries me a little bit that it requires 700 pages to really <laughs> cover it. <laughs> well, uh, maybe a good start would be to watch DNR TV. So. Yeah, exactly. So watch that on Thursday. It's only 700 pages because i cover all possible aspects of data binding it's for the simple stuff it's uh much less than that trust me and brian before we go uh before i ask you the dreaded question you have some uh copies of this book you want to give away right yeah yeah why don't we give away uh five copies of the book okay so basically how we're going to do this is the first five emails i get to net rocks at franklins.net who ask for it will get a copy of brian's book and they, have, and they have Go. to get the name right, uh, they, unlike the author. So. They have to get the name of the book right. So, Go, do it now. Go, do it now. All right. Brian Noyce, you are the man. <laughs> Hardly. Thanks, thanks for uh, coming on the show. We'd like to end with a question I like to ask everybody. It started off, uh, what is the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? But, you know, download is sort of limiting. So what's the coolest thing you've seen on the web or out there in the world uh, that you maybe a tool you use or... And and don't say Skype, please. <laughs> oh no! Actually, says, I'm not a big <laughs> Skype fan. Um, everybody says Skype. No, I would uh, I would have to say you know I'm still a Code Rush fan. I hate to yeah. you know plug uh, plug yeah. your cohorts uh, Mark Miller's tool there, but that is just the the coolest funnest thing to have in your environment for getting code written. It's a Code Rush revolution, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. All right, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you here in the studio and recording a couple episodes of DNR TV and this, obviously, .NET Rocks. Come back anytime. Be glad to. All right. Bye-bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a-